our biosphere is made up of natural planetary support systems that it should operate in perfect harmony with each other. Um, and they've provided the conditions for all life on Earth, including human life, for thousands of years, millions of years. But over the last 300 years or so, humans have been creating complex systems to meet our own needs. So there, there are energy systems, our food systems, transport systems, financial systems, and these are all based on the use of hydrocarbons and the exploitation of natural resources. And these systems have helped to lift people out of poverty and connect people globally and feed billions of people. But they have become completely out of sync with the natural world and are now damaging Earth's critical life support systems. So our purpose at Client Earth is to use that powerful tool that is the law to try and reconfigure or rewire these systems to help create that healthy planet where nature and, and people can thrive together. Hello and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear conversations that bring you one aha moment after another. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows enough about yet. It's so well hidden by all the negative noise in our media that I'm calling this wave a conspiracy of goodness. Yes, it is still an amazing world out there. And we're going to be introducing you on this podcast to some of the people making it that way. If you're tuning out the negative news and social media more and more these days, this podcast and the Mothership website at the Goodness Exchange can be the place where you go to get instant access to good news, signs of insight and innovation going completely uncelebrated. We have to know about good news and to think better thoughts and have better ideas ourselves and counsel our families and our coworkers in positive and expansive ways. So, Thank you for joining us at this podcast. I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of the Goodness Exchange website. It's a global website where you can find articles, links, podcasts, videos, all kinds of connections to what's right with the world. And we want to get started on that right now. And we will by introducing you to a guest that I have been excited to talk to for weeks, if not months. Elspeth Jones is deputy CEO for a company called Client Earth. This is a group of lawyers and environmentally educated folks who are defending the earth. They're actually working on behalf of the planet for us all. And I just thought this was such an incredible way of looking at what's possible. People who have the knowledge and the background can defend the planet, who else will, and take on all kinds of legal challenges to what's happening out there that's just not right for our future. So these lawyers and environmental experts come together. And they hold governments and companies to account over climate change, nature loss, and pollution. I guess I, I can't help but just read some bullet points that a colleague of Elspeth sent me. They are forcing pollution industries to shut down. They protect irreplaceable forests and vulnerable species. They empower people and NGOs with legal rights to bring forward environmental battles on their own. I mean, the work here is just so expensive, and I'm so delighted that somebody is defending our planet with so much gravitas. They're using the laws that exist, and they create real and long-lasting change. And the wonderful person from this organization who's volunteered to talk to us today is Elspeth Jones. She's worked as a, an executive director of the Climate Change and Tropical Forest, a charity called Size of Wales. And she'll tell you why that name matters in just a few minutes. And she spent years as a trustees and then vice chair of the Sumatran Orangutan Society. Her experience is like this. It's all over the place, defending the world, defending nature, and promoting environmentalism. And she had an environmental and work epiphany that she'll share with us that I think we'll, we, most of us could connect to. So that's how much I'll say. Elspeth Jones, welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. Thank you very much. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me here to, to talk a bit more about the work we do at Client Air. Well, I'll tell you, you know, take us in there. We're going to get to your bio because I think it's relevant to all of us who have this notion that maybe we are uniquely built to contribute something to, but we just haven't found it yet. Your story is super, super cool in that direction. 
but fill us full of some knowledge about the fact that you're out there. I mean, when I heard about your project, I was just glad that you exist, let alone to hear about the challenges that you're winning. So take us through what's going on here with Client Earth and why it's called that. Start with why it's called Client Earth. Yes, yeah, I'd love to. So Client Earth is an environmental charity. We're a non-profit with a unique approach. We use the power of the law to drive systems change to protect life on earth. The organization was actually founded about 15 years ago by by our founder, a lawyer called James Thornton. And his vision was to build a not-for-profit legal organization where our only client was the earth. And so that's where the name comes from. And our mission now is to use the law to help create a healthy planet where nature and all people can thrive together. And what's sort of driving that, our biosphere is made up of natural planetary support systems that it should operate in perfect harmony with each other. And they've provided the conditions for all life on Earth, including human life, for thousands of years, millions of years. But over the last 300 years or so, humans have been creating complex systems to meet our own needs. So there, there are energy systems, our food systems, transport systems, financial systems. And these are all based on the use of hydrocarbons and the exploitation of natural resources. And these systems have helped to lift people out of poverty and connect people globally and feed billions of people. But they have become completely out of sync with the natural world and are now damaging Earth's critical life support systems. So our purpose at Client Earth is to use that powerful tool that is the law to try and reconfigure or rewire these systems to help create that healthy planet where nature and and people can thrive together. Lovely. Well, you know, so I think what my takeaway was in doing a deep dive into your work is that the laws, many of the laws exist to protect the planet from pollution or degradation and all this. Like they were on the books, but there's just no one there enforcing them, or there's no one who knows that that law already exists. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And actually, the the way we approach it at Client Earth is we see ourselves as having three sort of interconnected categories of legal work. The first is sort of building the field, which is uh, training partners, staff at NGOs, lawyers out there who might be doing good work but are not doing this work, judges, prosecutors who who may not be confident in taking cases in these fields. We also provide funding to, to enable other NGOs to do more of this work and we publish thought pieces and engage in advocacy to sort of bring people's attention to that, to the possibilities of using the law in this way. And then we also have two other sort of key areas of activity. One is what we call legal advocacy, which is actually where we try and take existing laws and make them better or advocate for for laws where laws don't exist. And then the third category is where those other options aren't working, then we will litigate. So in many cases, what we're doing is working to enhance laws that already exist by drawing people's attention to them using them ourselves to litigate or enabling others to use them. And where the laws don't exist, we go out and advocate for them to try and fill those gaps. It's lovely. I can't help but feel validated. And I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast will feel that way too. Like there doesn't always have to be this nightmare of friction and chaos. You know, one of the statements that I read on your website was, and I wanted to ask you about this, I wanted to ask you, what does it mean to be working with instead of against powerful players? That's one of the things that that said on your website is that you guys have this mindset of working with powerful players instead of against them. And of course, our world needs so much more of that attitude. So talk to us about that. That's just so beautiful. Well, at Client Earth, like we do both. We work with and against yes. powerful players, depending on, oh, the, yes. on, on depending on the circumstances. And as I say, we aim to drive change through those three interrelated categories of legal activity. And I think one of our greatest strengths now as an organisation, so we started as predominantly European-focused organisation, operating out of London and Brussels, but we've grown rapidly since we started 15 years ago, and we now have lawyers and partners all over the world. 
And what that has brought with it is this extraordinary breadth and depth of legal expertise across the organization. Everything from environmental law to company law to laws about financial markets, competition law. We have Chinese lawyers, we have Australian lawyers, we have US lawyers, we have lawyers qualified from most European Union countries. And what that brings with us is this deep expertise that we can either deploy against powerful players through litigation and those sort of slightly more adversarial types of activities, or as as you see from our website, we can also deploy that expertise to work with powerful players to help shape laws, train, uh, shape uh, legislation and, and laws as they are created or when they're reviewed by the lawmaking bodies, or to train judges, to train lawyers, to train prosecutors. And so we're able to deploy that expertise both ways. Um, and we do. We always look for what is the right combination for to tackle this particular problem. And in, in some places, we might take a sort of more field building training sort of approach. And in, in other spaces, we feel, well, actually, we need to be a bit more forceful here and deploy our expertise in a slightly different way. How many lawyers are there involved in this so far? Yeah, so we are, we're about 300 people globally now. That's not all lawyers because yeah. to, to have 300 people working well together, you know, we need quite a lot of uh, support teams there as well. So I'd say we're prob- probably not far off 200 lawyers, just probably a little bit less than that in terms of our legal experts. And then the rest, the rest of our colleagues you know, help create the right operational environment for those lawyers to go out and, and do that really cool work. So I know people are probably scratching their heads and, and asking, so I'll ask it, how's this funded? So we are a not-for-profit, so we're funded by philanthropy, donations from foundations, donations from people who set up a regular monthly contribution. So it's, it's a range of different donors, but it's all philanthropic. So we work entirely not-for-profit. And actually our, our lawyers, many of our lawyers have come from big law firms where they had pretty large salaries and pretty good careers. And actually they, you know, some of our lawyers take, you know, a 50% or more pay cut to come and join Client Earth because they're so passionate about what we do and we can't match the salaries that those, those huge law firms offer. But what we can do is offer that sense of purpose and that sort of shared vision of what we're trying to achieve together. That's, it's just breathtaking what's, what's possible going forward. Because as you mentioned, this has grown pretty fast, right? The founder started this in 2008. Yeah, so we're, f- we're 15 years old. Yeah. James started Client Earth. Yeah, it would have been about 2008. And then I, I actually joined Client Earth in 2014. So Client Earth had been, go- been going around about five years or so when I first joined. And when I arrived, Client Earth had, we were 50 people. <laughs> And we were, we were all based in Europe at, at that point. And so we were, yes. we were a much smaller organization at that time, a, a more of a sort of scrappy startup. But over the last 10 years, you know, we've really grown globally and, and we've gone on quite a journey in terms of increasing our ambitions to drive global impact to tackle some of these really urgent challenges that we're facing. Wow. Okay. So for something to grow like that, there must be some wins on the book. You want to tell us a couple stories about the, what, what keeps you going? You must see enough wins yeah. to know that you matter. Tell, give us some stories. Yeah, we have great stories that come out of our programs at Client Earth all the time, which is just wonderful. I'd say actually, I'd say that I'm an optimist by nature myself, which I think you know helps me to stay hopeful working in a field that can sometimes feel a bit bleak and sometimes feel a bit overwhelming. And before I just tell you about a few of our wins at Client Earth, I just want to sort of share a sort of story of hope and optimism that that I use to sort of anchor anchor myself when I'm looking for hope and optimism amongst uh, the work that we do and, and our wider sector. My children have a book called The Little Gardener by a woman called Emily Hughes. And it's a wonderful little story and beautifully illustrated, actually. It's just an absolutely beautiful book. And it's about this tiny little gardener. He's really tiny and he lives in a big garden. And the book explains that this garden means everything to him. It's his home, his food and his joy. And he has this friend who's an earthworm that lives in, in the garden with him. And he works really hard to tend to this garden. 
but he's just too little and the garden becomes tangled and overgrown. But amongst all of that, he manages to grow one flower, which is a, a sort of single, magnificent, beautiful flower. And other people who are bigger than him see the flower and it inspires them to come and, and tend the garden. And slowly more people come until there's a team of people looking after the garden. And over time, the garden is beautiful and thriving once again. And so whenever I sort of feel a dip in my own optimism, I go and dig that book out of my children's bookshelf and remind myself that even though sometimes we might feel that we're too small to make a difference or that you know, some of the problems we face in the world are overwhelming, we can, even a small group of people can catalyze big change in the world. And I see you know, the winds that come out of our teams at plant as flowers <laughs> that are sort of blooming. And for each flower that blooms, it inspires hope in me and I think in my colleagues that those flowers may inspire other people to come and tend the garden and we'll see more and more flowers bloom. But I, th I thought I could share a few of those stories with you of some of our recent wins, if you'd like to hear some. Absolutely. And I have to say, I'm never forgetting that story. That You put it so well and it's a visual you, I won't be able to unsee, I'm pretty sure. So thank you for sharing that with us. I'm sure Countless people can apply that to the things that they're doing, that they're working hard on, that they care about. Thank you for that. Okay. Give us some stories about client earth and the successes that are happening in protecting the earth with legal and environmental expertise. Yes. So a wonderful flower that has bloomed this year is a case that we call the Torres Strait Islanders case. And this is a case that has been brought by a group of people from the Torres Strait Islands, which are islands that lie off the northern tip of Queensland between Australia and Papua New Guinea. And for thousands of years, the islands have been home to the claimants, ancestors and families. But the effects of climate change are now hitting those islands hard. Tides are rising every year and homes are, are being flooded lands and important cultural sites are being flooded and even burial grounds are being washed away into the sea. And the rising sea temperatures are also damaging the health of the marine ecosystems around the islands. So the wonderful coral reefs are being bleached and the ocean is becoming more acidic. So what we have been doing is working since it, back in 2019, this case started and we've been working with a group of eight Torres Strait Islander people. and. They have filed a groundbreaking complaint to the United Nations Human Rights Committee, which is an international human rights body, arguing that the Australian government failed to act on climate change, that a failure to act on climate change is violating their fundamental human rights, their right to life, their right to family, and their right to culture under the UN's treaty, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And in September this year, so just very recently, the UN committee gave its ruling. These things take a bit of time to, to go through the machinery of the, of the tribunals. And the UN committee upheld the complaints. They found that climate change is currently impacting the islanders' daily lives to the extent that their fundamental rights are being violated. And the, the committee found that Australia is failing to take sufficient steps to secure the community's safe existence on their islands. And the committee has also asked Australia to compensate the claimants for the harm suffered and do whatever is needed to secure that community's safe existence. And that, so that's a case that gives me hope because it's a case with a lot of firsts in it. It breaks a lot of new ground. And I think whenever we see the law breaking new ground, we're seeing progress. This was the very first legal action brought by climate vulnerable inhabitants of a low-lying island nation against their nation state. And it's also the first time that an international tribunal has found that a country has violated human rights laws through inadequate climate policy. It's also the first time a nation state has been found responsible for their greenhouse gas emissions under international human rights law, which is a big step. And the first time that indigenous the that an indigenous people's right to culture has been found to be at risk from climate impacts. So it's really, the case really is a, a flower. It's broken a lot of new ground. And Yessi, I have a wonderful quote from Yessi Mosby, who is one of the claimants in that case, one of the Torres Strait 
Islanders. And on, on the day that the committee gave its decision, he gave this quote, and I love it. He said, this morning when I woke up on Massig, which is one of the islands, I saw that the sky was full of frigate birds. And in my culture, we take this as a sign from my ancestors that we would be hearing good news very soon about this case. I know that our ancestors are rejoicing knowing that Torres Strait Islander voices are being heard through the world through this landmark case. Climate change affects our way of life every day. This wind gives us hope that we can protect our island homes, culture and traditions for our kids and future generations to come. And I just love that quote. It sort of really brings to life what this case means to that community. And of course, as the law does, that case now paves the way for other similar cases to be brought both in Australia and all over the world. So it really is a flower and hopefully it will inspire other countries and other communities to do more as well. I got goosebumps through most of that last quote. <laughs> and I kept, maybe it's just the way my mind works. And I know maybe a lot of the people that are regulars to the Conspiracy of Good just podcast, their minds must work like this. Because to have that one little story is enough. One success is enough. But that's not what actually it points to. How many islands are there in Indonesia alone that are suffering that exact same scenario? And legal precedent is just like a boulder. I don't understand much about legal precedent, but talk to us just a little bit about this, what this means to the, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of other island communities just in that region, let alone the whole planet. What does legal precedent mean? Yeah. So a case like this can have knock-on impacts in lots of different ways. So a strict legal precedent will apply within a particular country. So a court in the UK decides that the law should be interpreted in a certain way. And then actually other judges in the UK are legally required to follow that judgment. So in, in that sort of narrowest sense, it actually creates a le- what we call a legally binding precedent where subsequent judges are legally required to follow it. And that sort of precedent can happen, for example, in the, in the UK. It can happen at the European Union level. So actually, if you win a case at the European, in the European courts, that can have a knock-on legal precedent for the whole of the European Union, which can be quite, have quite a huge effect. But then in a softer sense, when you get a groundbreaking case like this in front of the UN committee or anywhere in the world, even if the case is not legally binding, for example, in the United States or in South Africa, it, it begins to shift the culture. Judges look at it and think, well, that committee found that. And so actually, if a case like this comes in front of me, maybe I can be a little bit bolder than I thought I could be. And I think it gradually sorts of shifts the culture and mindset of the people who are deciding these cases as they start seeing these sort of more progressive decisions popping up around the world. And then I think the other thing it does, and, and this is you know explicitly part of part of our sort of strategy at Client Earth, is that if we can take cases like this, you grow a flower like this, others see it and think, oh, maybe I could do a case like that, or maybe we could try and argue this. And it acts as inspiration for other NGOs, other lawyers around the world who might then think, if they can do it, I can do it. And so you have that sort of double whammy of both sort of pushing the judges in terms of their culture and thinking, but also inspiring others to actually take the cases to court. It's just so lovely. And it, it just, I think it just lessens the risk for all future thinkers, right? Mm-hmm. It lowers the bar, makes it, you know, the, what do they call it? The barrier for participation is so much yes. lower if there's already been one big win in sort of the same zone or genre that you're you're thinking about going in. It's lovely. It's lovely. Yeah. Okay. So let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about the wins so that we can all walk with us for your nurse step today. We'll be back. Hi, Dr. Linda here. Many of you know that the mothership website of this podcast is called the Goodness Exchange. And there you can find articles, a video library, podcasts, and content collections that point to what's right with the world. You can visit every day and you'll find the antidote to all the negative noise out there in the world. Okay, that solves the problem in our personal lives. We can choose what to give our attention to every morning and end our day with something positive. 
But what about our work environments? We need to feel supported and come alive in those cultures. But that's becoming harder and harder when most of us go to virtual work. And many of us who are working with others still never have shared positive experiences with our colleagues. By definition, culture comes from shared experience. So employees find it harder and harder every day to create an environment that attracts and retains other great people. Well, enter the Goodness Exchange and our extraordinary content, which celebrates an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows enough about yet. My team and I at the Goodness Exchange are making certain that employees of optimistic, values-driven companies have instant access to the positive news out there today. Because science is telling us that it's time to start celebrating what's right with the world. And here's the thing. There are so many positive stories out there about astounding solutions to some of our world's biggest problems, about wonders and leaps in human potential. But most are going completely uncelebrated. Your culture can change that and can be changed by a new focus on goodness and progress. In fact, with all that negative noise out there, your work culture can be infused by a sense of flourishing. People can be sharing ideas and swapping stories of wonderful, ingenious solutions around the water cooler again. With instant access to good news, employees can stay on their feet and take turns being the one who makes opportunity out of setback. People who use the Goodness Exchange every day have a spring in their step. They radiate joy and confidence and creativity because they know a far more complete picture of what's going on in the world. If you'd like to chat about infusing the culture where you work with a tone of celebration of goodness and innovation and progress, let's hop on a Zoom. You can introduce us to your HR director or your chief of culture. You know, if used consistently, our content can give companies a way to turn something aspirational, like positivity, into a concrete way of being. Thanks. Talk to us at The Goodness Exchange about change and flourishing where you work. Okay, we're back with lawyer, barrister, attorney. (laughs) You're going to have to explain to us the difference in Elspeth. Elspeth Jones who works for an amazing organization in the world that we can all thank for defending the planet. And this group of lethal and variable experts that are taking up all kinds of cases all over the planet, they work for an organization called Client Earth. And when I saw the name, when I learned about you, I think I stumbled upon some of your work on LinkedIn. And the name was enough to get me curious. And here we are today talking to Elspeth about what this organization is doing for us all in our shared future. So when we went for a break, we were talking about examples of reasons to be optimistic or the big wins, the ongoing work. Tell us another story if you've got one. Yes, I do. I have, I have some more stories. I'd love to tell you another Great. one. So another one it, it happened yesterday, actually. So it's, um, it's hot off the press. Yesterday, the, the European Union, which is the set of institutions that create the laws that apply to all of the countries who are members of the European Union, agreed a new law that will ban the imports of products linked to deforestation, and particularly deforestation that is happening in tropical regions, for example, in the Amazon Basin, in the Congo Basin, and in Southeast Asia. The biggest drivers of deforestation in those parts of the world are actually the commodities, things like beef and soy and coffee, cocoa used in chocolate, timber, rubber. These are all things that we buy in Europe, North America, and consume here and are actually driving deforestation in other parts of the world. And the, this law that the European Union agreed yesterday covers those products and provides for that companies that are selling those products into the European Union will have to now prove that their goods are not linked to deforestation or they'll face fines of up to 4% of their annual turnover. And that's a groundbreaking law globally, in fact. And it's a law that Client Earth and many others in our movement have been advocating for for a long time in Europe. 
the law, it still needs to be agreed by two more European institutions, the European Council and the European Parliament. But if it passes, which we very much hope that it will, it sets a new golden standard for forest protection and really has the potential to trigger major structural changes on deforestation well beyond the European Union. So a change in the law in Europe can have these sort of global structural changes all over the world. And actually, I was looking into this earlier and, and found, a, found that the European Commission has actually done an impact assessment that estimates that the new law will protect about 278 square miles, which is about 100,000, listen, when I looked it up this morning, about 100,000 football or soccer pitches of forest every year. So, you know, that is an extraordinary impact for one new law. And as lawyers, obviously, we will, of course, they will say that there's bits of the law that could be better than it is. You know, that's our job. But nonetheless, the agreement yesterday is inspiring and another flower that's blooming in this space. And I, I really hope that not only will it have that sort of far-reaching impact by targeting those goods that are coming into the EU from other parts of the world, but hopefully other countries and regions will look at this law and think, well, actually, we could do the same in maybe North America, China, perhaps, and look at it and think, well, let's do that as well. And before you know it, you've got huge structural change around, around deforestation driven, driven by what is currently one new law. All right. So you give me goosebumps still twice. <laughs> yes, because I talked to enough people. I've interviewed a couple of, if people are interested in the particular topic that Elspeth just talked about, we have an interview, episode 81, with an amazing woman in, her name is Chochi Interlude. And she is a CEO of an organization called Humans for Abundance, who has found a way to have folks like you and I recognize that we are responsible for a lot of the degradation of rainforests. And instead of charitably donating, gosh knows what they'll do with our money, to some charity, Reserve the Rainforest. She has, the Humans for Abundance actually allows somebody like me to say, yes, I drink coffee. Yes, I eat chocolate, which are both big problems. And in the rainforest and the clear, and then the eating of beef, of course, is huge. They actually pay people who own parts of the rainforest, like local farmers, local indigenous people. The rainforest is not just some rainforest in South America. It's owned by people and families for generations and stuff that finally have to sell out just to put food on their families' tables. So this organization, Humans for Abundance, has figured out this marvelous model to allow me to sort of offset the damage I'm doing by purchasing coffee or cocoa or beef or what have you. And I support two families who own tracts of rainforest. And one is cultivating it for jaguars. And the other one's cultivating it for an animal I particularly love called tapirs. And of course, when you, when I'm not, it's not a charitable donation, I'm actually making a salary possible for those families so that they aren't moved to sell to people who will just destroy the rainforest. And what is important about what you just told me, the law and this European Union-wide backstop, let's call it, is that the growth that humans for abundance would need to actually produce, pr protect the rainforest is, is so big that while I'm super excited about her organization, it doesn't give me that much hope that we can actually turn the corner. What you're talking about makes it an institutional, groundbreaking social contract, right? This is a groundbreaking entire socially, entirely wide contract that's just like you're going to destroy the rainforest we're not going to give you our money it's really 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 important that we make these sweeping big changes that can affect things from the hundred thousand foot look because as wonderful as chochi's group is it was going to take a long time for that to ever make the kind of progress that this one institutional change makes yeah and i think i think you need both you know you need those yes absolutely sort of more sort of grassroots, community-led pieces of work. And then you also need these sort of institutional changes that actually shift yeah. the entire structure of the system to really get at the root causes of what's driving the deforestation. And I think 
that's what we at Client Earth are really about is trying to get in there at the systemic root causes and try and fix it at that institutional level. And there's a little bit of a sort of loop between the law and sort of culture and morality, perhaps. Perhaps morality is the wrong word, but, you know, the idea of what is right and wrong. And, And sometimes what is right and what we feel is right and wrong sometimes shifts before a law shift and the law takes its time to catch up. So, you know, we something may become sort of widely considered to be wrong and then the law changes. But in other cases, it's actually the law that changes first and, you know, the law changes and then fairly quickly after the law changes, our sort of morality and, and sense of what is right and wrong shifts with it. And I think yeah, you know, one of the, in in Europe in particular, I think the the ban on smoking in public was one of those where one minute it was very socially acceptable to smoke in public, the law changed and suddenly it wasn't. And you know, I think there is sometimes you need culture to change so that you can then change the law, but sometimes you can you can change the law and and the culture change follows. And so you sort of need both. You need sort of individual behaviour change, but and you also need that sort of systemic legal change as well. And I think that's especially true of this whole climate change mitigation, a battle that we're all going to be in, whether we like it or not. Like, we're going to need it to go both ways. We're going to need people in the streets, and we're going to need smart folks who say, hey, there's already laws of the, like, it's not being enforced to begin momentum in the right direction. I love this. A gratitude economy popping up, where industry is realizing that they're not going to be able to get away with destroying the planet in order to pay shareholders. And that there's a whole generation, there's a whole generation of Gen Z and millennials who are physically choosing not to give their money to people who are not taking our future seriously and their role in it. And I'm calling that a gratitude economy because we're so many people are choosing, I guess it's like 64% of consumers now consider themselves values driven they'll really check out the company that they're giving their money to and they'll actively choose to give their money to those folks who can really substantiate that they are doing good business while doing good for the planet. And I I think that's going to tie in to this European legal result that you're talking about, don't you think? Like companies who embrace this quickly will be on the leading edge of saying, hey, we're already there. We're not buying from suppliers who aren't responsible. Talk to me about what you see there about the gratitude economy that's going. Yeah, I think I think it's really important. I think somebody once said to me, "Every pound or dollar that every dollar that you spend is a vote for the world you want to live in," and that really stuck with me because actually, it, you know, it makes you realise the power of your choices as a consumer and how that can impact the world around you. And so, I think that's a big part of it as well. I think I think it, you can drive that change in companies both through a sort of top-down legislative approach, but also through the consumer choices. I think a a key place where it connects into a theme that we're working on quite a lot is around greenwashing, though. I think the more consumers want green products and, and green companies, the more tempting it becomes for companies to to imply that they're they're greener or more socially conscious than they actually are and so there is there there is a sort of growing awareness that consumers just need to keep an eye on what they're being told and whether it rings true and that's a space where we're seeing strengthening in terms of legal frameworks but also regulators around advertising for example stepping in and being willing to intervene when a company is over projecting how green it is um, Mm -hmm. which then obviously impinges on the ability of a consumer to to make those choices Um, and we've we've got a few cases going in that space as well where we are challenging claims made by for example fossil fuel companies where they're trying to create the impression Mm -hmm. that they are that they're greener than they actually are because they want to tap into that gratitude economy i think as you were calling it Okay, so just as a as a human, a consumer, you, when you see these things, like, do you have any little tips that you use? For me, I'll give you an example. Like, well, people are always asking me, because I tell people not to turn off the news. I know that sounds weird because, you know, it is all doom and gloom and I'm the opposite. But, you know, counsel my kids, right? Or 
talk sensibly about the world unless I know a lot about it. So I'm staying in there. And what I tell people to do is find a news outlet that has as little agenda as possible. And the way you know whether somebody has an agenda is you just think about their deeper truths. So we all know the big news agencies that have to make money. That's how they exist. But we have, you guys have the BBC, we have National Public Radio. We, there are organiz- news organizations that their deeper truth is public information and it's not making money for shareholders. So in your case, you probably look at the things you buy as a consumer in the same way. You probably have some strategy in your mind. For me, it's listening to news and going, wait, what is their agenda here? What's their purpose? How do you do that when you walk in a grocery store or department store, you decide to order something online? What are you looking for? Do you have any tips for us when we, when we think, oh, this, sound, this company sounds so green and so motivated? What do you do next? It's really hard. There are, so there are a lot of standards out there and labels that companies can affiliate themselves with. And some of them are, are good and are really ro- have really robust standards behind them. And others are really not very good. And so other than sort of picking, picking my way through the different standards and labels that I'm sort of aware of, this one's good and this one's not so good... It's very difficult as a consumer to walk down an aisle in your supermarkets and be reassured that you're you're picking the right products. And I think a big a big part of what we would like to see as an organisation and and me as a consumer as well is the ideal is that you can walk into your supermarket and be confident that every single product there is not causing causing harm to the environment that would be the ideal but i think greater transparency in in labeling is is badly needed so that when you're sort of picking your way through a product on 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 the shelves you can be confident that the label that suggests that a product is sustainable is actually sustainable and that it's mm-hmm. not greenwashed i'm afraid i don't have a nice neat answer to that actually because because i think right now it's really hard um, but mm-hmm. I think I think that's a space where the law can actually help to standardise a bit and mm-hmm. to help give consumers confidence that you know your peanut butter is not the peanut butter you buy is not driving deforestation in Sumatra and and so on. Yes. Okay. So that's more to come on. I think I, I'm, I'm going to track down for this article. I'm going to track down some way to give people at least a smattering of labels that are trustworthy. There's the Dolphin Safe Tuna labels. I know there's one that's fake and there's one that's you can rely on that sort of genre. Because I, I mm-hmm. do rely on that. There's the palm oil industry. There's the mm-hmm. folks who greenwash that whole thing. But there's one that does yeah. that does actually mean business, one label. I track down some of these for to add to this episode because that's something I really mm-hmm. want people to understand. That if you're listening to this podcast or watching it other than anywhere but the Goodness Exchange website, you're going to have access to a whole bunch more if you go to the Goodness Exchange website and watch it there. Because we're going to fill this episode full of links to things we're mentioning and all kinds of connections to the good that's happening in the world. But of course, you can't get that on the usual podcast listening services. So go to the website and then you're going to, you'll have a lot more around this, this topic. Okay. So tell me what you really wish people knew? This is one of those those questions I try and ask every guest. For instance, the whale biologist recently interviewed with, he's got this great drone project where they're using a drone called the Snot Bot to study whales. It's just an amazing thing. You had the best answer to that question. You know, we're all wandering around championing these these big ideas. Our, we have our big promise. And then there's so many times during the day I know I, I say, oh, I wish people only knew that their click is a vote, that every single thing they give their attention to on the internet is just creating on us to get our clicks. So what do you really wish people knew? It's a great question. So I already mentioned the one that you know, every every dollar or every pound you spend yes. is a vote for the world you want. But actually, I think... That's lovely. And maybe this one's a bit too cheesy, but I think that n- no one, no one is too small to make a difference. And if you start by starting, you never know where that will take you. I joined Client Earth back in 2014 and, and I left a career as commercial barrister in London where I'd sort of invested quite a lot of time building up my legal practice and my legal skills. And 
around that time, I had a had an environmental epiphany, realized what was going on in the world. And, and once I could see it, I couldn't unsee it. And so I, I left that, my career at, at, as a commercial barrister with a slightly crazy idea in my mind of using those hard-won legal skills to protect the planet. And as if the universe intended it, at that almost exact moment, Client Earth launched a case, and I wasn't at Client Earth at the time. Client Earth was about four or five years old, launched a case in the UK against the UK government to tackle air pollution in the UK. And it all just clicked, and I, and I saw that case, and I thought, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I want to do with the rest of my life. And I joined Client Earth, and I've never looked back. And now in my role, now I'm deputy CEO of Client Earth, nearly 10 years on. And my personal mission now, and I think my, my passion is to help create the right organizational environment that enables all of our incredible people at Client Earth to thrive, which in turn means that they can go out and change the world so that in turn the planet and nature and all people can thrive. And I think the thing that, that I really wish people knew is that none of us is too small to play a role in driving that change. We all have different talents and there are many ways that we can deploy them to make a difference. And when I left education, I had no idea that my path would bring me here. And I would never have thought that I w would have been able to work in this space let alone help lead an organization quite as incredible as client. So, yeah, I think my message would be that, that none of us is too small to play a role and that we can all look at our unique talents and bring something fresh to to the table. That is so true. I mean, it's so easy to look at your life experiences up to now and think about making a big change like you did and think that everything that came before was wasted time. It's so easy to think that. But what I look at it like is that, that we then bring all this strange and wonderful alchemy of lived experiences and exposures to this new thing that, and we might have five pieces of the puzzle that helps fill in that whole big picture. It's so exciting to think. So, Thank you for sharing that origin story with me. So do you think, just to go off in the, little, in the weeds there a little bit, what do you think was going on in your mindset when you had that epiphany? Were you starting to feel a little unfulfilled in what you were doing? Were you actively looking for more meaning and purpose? Or do you think it was all just playing out in the background of your mind? Yeah, I think, I think initially it was playing out in the background of my mind. I started paying a bit more attention to environmental news. I picked up a few books, popular environmental books, and started reading them and sort of found that I was interested and just kept going, picking up another book and another book, yeah, as, as you do, and starting to pursue that interest. And then at the same time, I, you know, a lot of the clients that I was representing then were oil and gas companies, and I was beginning to develop a, an accidental niche in oil rig engineering <laughs> um, and the legal, the, all the legal arguments that, that spin out of the building and repairing and the moving and the damaging of oil rigs. And suddenly I could see the two things side by side and, I, and it just clicked and I thought my work is just not aligned to what, the world that I want to see. I was working very, very hard and I thought... You know, I have a lot of passion, a lot of energy, and I've invested a lot of myself in learning about the law and developing legal skills, but I feel completely unfulfilled in the way that I'm deploying them. And so I decided to, I suppose, sort of switch sides. <laughs> but then this sort of beautiful concept of having the earth as your clients appeared through, through me learning about client earth and that the case that was happening at the time. And it was just so compelling that, that I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. Oh, it's just such a lovely story. I hope people have can take this to heart and know that in their own, you know, that reading of books, that noticing of articles, that whole bit was in preparation of what you were uniquely built to contribute where you're at now. So I would yes. encourage folks. That's something. Some story like that is usually present for most of the thought leaders we interview. Some. 
that where they started at one place were open enough to start sort of hearing what they needed to hear and then they made the leap so as we close here where can people contact your organization what can they do how do they find out more and how they can help we have a website clientis.org which is a great place to to find out a bit more about us we're also on all the main social media channels so you can find us on there i'm on linkedin and i'm happy to connect and i'm always sort of keen to, to learn other people's experiences in the world so linkedin we're also on facebook and twitter and, and all those usual channels we also we have a newsletter that people can sign up to and we do we have we have a team that run really great online events we have a summit once a year and, and we have events in between where people can tune in and hear our lawyers talking about their cases and also our partners talking about their work as well so there's lots of great channels where people can learn a bit more about what we do in terms of help i think spreading the word really i think telling people firstly how powerful the law can be as a tool for driving change once you see it, it's obvious, but sometimes it's not so obvious. Um, and so you know, it really is a powerful tool for driving these structural and systemic changes. But also that there's a very cool group of lawyers at, at Client Earth who are really working at the forefront of this space. And I suppose finally, of course, without funding and donations, we can't do our work. We, we need to grow our funding to enable us to grow our work and our impact. So, so we're always looking for support in that way as well. Okay, lovely. Lots of ways people can can get involved. And, you know, I'd have to reiterate one part of what you just said, you know, this sharing of this kind of a conversation, you just never know whose ears a conversation this might land on and what they might do next. So we always encourage people to share these podcasts, not in a self-serving way, but in a serve the planet way, serve the serve humanity way, because we have great examples of folks who've been on this podcast. And I asked them the, ex- one of the same kind of questions that I'm, I'm going to ask you here at the very end of our conversation. And what they, at, what they said came true. Like the last question I want to ask you is, what would have to happen next to help this organization really break open, to, to burst onto the scene so ordinary people knew you were there? so that ordinary people could point to problems that they know about that no one's defending against, you know, what would have to happen next? Yeah, that's another great question. So we we actually asked ourselves this about 18 months ago to ask ourselves, how do we go to that next level in terms of our impact? And as climate change and biodiversity loss accelerates around us, what needs to happen for us to do the best work of our lives is the question we ask ourselves and to deliver our highest and most urgent impact ever. And actually, the step one answer was that we that we realized that it was a lot about unleashing the full potential of the extraordinary people that we have working at Client Earth. And we had grown very rapidly and are now about 300 staff globally. And like many organizations, we're building up some, some silos, some systems and processes and ways of working that weren't really working for us. So actually, we've spent the last 12 months or so really digging in and and opening up our organizational structures, fixing things that weren't working properly internally and moving people around so that we can unleash their full passion and potential with the aim of enabling everyone on planet Earth to do, do their best work of their lives. And we're now we're just coming to the end of that process. It's been, you know, it's been the 12 month process of optimizing the way the organization runs. And I think now we feel we feel raring to go as we as we come to the end of this year and move into 2023. And over the next few years, we're going to be focusing on growing our work in Asia and North America and in other parts of the world, but those two places in particular. And I think at this stage now, I think the single biggest the single biggest thing that we need to drive a leap in our impact. And I think lots of not-for-profit organizations are experiencing this right now is because the outside world is changing so quickly around us, the opportunities to, to use the law or to intervene and drive real change come at us at high speed. And so what we really need is, is funding that is flexible and enables us to be agile and adaptive. And historically, a lot of, a lot of charitable funding comes 
comes quite narrowly defined you know here's the money and you can just use it for this and we're going to plan out now a three-year plan of how you're going to do yeah. do work every year for the next three years and actually you know what what we need now in this sort of new fast-paced changing world where we need to really respond urgently is much more flexible funding and i think that then means we can respond to to opportunities and then i think the other side of it is just growing our networks you know spreading the word taking the message to all parts of the world that the law is a key key lever for making these transitions happen and the international processes like the COP, the climate change COP, and, and there's also a biodiversity COP happening in Montreal this week. And those international processes are, are one piece of the puzzle, but a lot of the power of the law to, to as a lever for this change is going to happen at the, the state level, the country level, you know, it's, it's going to happen at those levels. And so really spreading the word that people need to access and leverage the law to make the change at every level and not wait for, not necessarily wait for those international mechanisms to solve the problem. Mm, and, you know, we can all be a part of that because we know what's going on in our neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And a, and a lot of this change needs to happen locally you know ultimately it's about people and real people's lives yeah yeah there was a great story um, that i first ran, ran across about a plastics plant not sure that this will come to your mind i don't know enough about it to describe it that was somewhere and it was just gonna be just the pits environmentally and like to think that a plant that big could just appear on the landscape mm. anywhere in the world in this day and age, with all the pollutants that we know it takes to run that or the what comes out of them, really took me aback to read that story. Do you know which story I'm talking about? Yes, yes. It's the company is Ineos, and yeah, it's a it's a big plastic plant in Europe. Yeah, and and actually, what we've done is you know we're, we're challenging the the permits for building that that plastic plastic plant, and it's connected to to the transition in the fossil fuel industry as well as you know, plastic is made from petrochemicals and so it's part of the business plan for, of a lot of these big companies to transition into plastics and so actually this and this is why we try and look at the change at a systemic level because you shut one thing down and it pops up somewhere else and so you know some of that growth in the plastic industry is part of i think you know we, we describe it sometimes as the plan b of some of these petrochemical companies yeah, and this is really important for people to look out for. Uh, that I do make myself skim the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal every day. <laughs> uh, that's a way to start out the day. But I do feel like I need to know what's happening in the world. And that that topic of the petroleum industry switching over to plastics and making us all feel like they're greener than green in their hearts is just really something as consumers we've got to be a lot more savvy about. But, you know, yeah. does it kind of start out as a jobs thing, too? Because everything is local. This is, this is what I'm finding out about everything. It starts local. So if that plastics plant went to a place that, for some reason, jobs were way more desperately needed than, than environmental regulations, let's say, they're going to easily sell that at the town council. And then before you know it, you've got a giant behemoth have a problem on your hands but it's so hard to undo once it's going is yeah. that actually how it takes place yeah yeah and and that's where the complexity comes in you know for example i live in south wales and many parts of south wales were were coal, coal mining towns and you know the coal went once the coal mines were shut down jobs were lost and a lot of those villages you know really struggled to find other industries and and so you can completely sympathize with the with the local authorities when a business opportunity comes along that's going to create jobs to prioritize the short term over the long term or the prioritize the local over the over the global and that's that's really hard and I, and the same applies when we talk about deforestation a lot of the quite quite a lot of coffee is grown by small small scale farmers and if if Europe stops importing coffee, then then or from certain parts of the world, then people lose their jobs. And so, there needs to be a holistic approach where not only are we stopping the bad stuff, but we're also creating the space for the good stuff to to flourish. And there's lots of potential and for green jobs and safer industries. And it's it's 
trying to reconfigure the financial incentives from the state, the tax incentives, the whole system to create the right conditions for those good, clean industries to flourish and create jobs rather than locking in investment in those harmful industries that we really need to move away from. Yeah, that's the bottom line, isn't it? Well, this is probably a, a, a great way to wrap up is that there's all this promise in your work and there's work to be done. And what comes down to is, I'm sure, I'm sure that you can become aware of things that are approaching communities like the plastics kind of scenario, plant sort of scenario, and do a lot more good at the beginning of that whole process than once it's sitting there in the landscape and we've all got to, got to handle whatever it's pumping out. So this is a great reminder again of why it's important to share conversations like this that you stumble upon. So please help Elspeth and her colleagues defend the earth since their client is the earth. (laughs) And you can help us at the Goodness Exchange promote stories like this of hope and progress and people that are out there creating a shared future that we can all be proud of. So Elspeth, thank you so much for joining the Conspiracy Goodness podcast. For more information on client earth's work you can go to the the, this episode is teed up like an article at the goodness exchange and there's going to be so much more there and all the links that we mentioned i hope all these connections to goodness and progress carry everyone through their week and you can start finding all the joy and wonder that we talk about and point to at the conspiracy of goodness podcast thanks elspeth thank you so much thank you for having me it's been a pleasure okay everybody have a great day make it a good week